So first time I kind of just let it go. I was like, okay, I'm just not gonna look at it. I trust Uber. I trust people. I trust my intuition. I'm just gonna focus on on my learnings. And then when Uber goes IPO, I was like, oh, I, I didn't prepare. <laughs> so I will share that to you. Welcome to podcast for financially focused technology employees. Are you working for equity? Do you have questions on how your career and money work together? Then welcome. Every week, we discuss strategies and tactics for how to grow your career, build wealth, and reach your financial and lifestyle goals. My name is Christopher Nelson. I'm your host here at Tech Careers and Money Talk, and I just want to say welcome. Thanks for joining us today. As we're navigating our tech careers, there's also the equity, the money that comes with it. And we don't always understand when we receive the equity, what questions should we ask or what don't we know? which is sometimes so hard for us to understand because things are moving so fast. You're going to get a lot of value out of our conversation today with Frank Zia. Frank has worked at Uber, Open Door, a company that went through an IPO and has even gone on to found his own company. And he is going to be very transparent in the way that he learned a lot of things through trial and error. He's going to share some very valuable lessons that you can take with you so that you can know the questions that you need to be asking now so that you don't make the same mistakes that he did. We're also going to dig into his thesis on why he's taking a good portion of his tech equity and he's moving it into private equity real estate. He, like many of us, is seeking financial independence and financial freedom, and he's leveraging real estate as his vehicle. I want to understand what is driving that motivation. I'm excited for you to meet Frank. Let's go talk to him right now. All right, Frank, I'm excited to welcome you today to Tech Careers and Money Talk. And for those of you listening, I want to introduce you to Frank Zia. Frank's a tech employee who's worked for big tech. He's gone through an IPO and he's also started a company. Today, he's building a private equity company focused on real estate. I'm excited to introduce everybody today to Frank Zia. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me here today. My pleasure. And I think we could all get so much out of your story because you've really worked across what I would call the spectrum of tech when you think about trading your time and talent for equity. And you did this by building a skill in data. What was it that attracted you to uh, building your skills and getting into the data space? Yeah, that's a very good question. So my education is math and financial engineering. So I didn't want to do data from the beginning. My goal is trying to get a very good job in like a hedge fund or Goldman Sachs, something like that. But just magically, when I'm doing my financial engineering education at Berkeley, the AI stuff start to start up because this is the time when the AlphaGo beat the world championship. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to, I, I think this is the future. So I actually intentionally choose a career in tech instead of hedge fund. And obviously the most immediate related um, skill uh, set I can share is basically statistical skill set and data analysis or Python or a bunch of other related. So the only job I can find at the time is data scientist. This is how I get into the tech world. And then I start to build my skill set around the data side. So, but I, I'm always a number guy. I like dealing with numbers more than people in general. I think number never lies to you and number always tell the truth. And I'm good at telling the story behind 
numbers. So I, this is why I've been doing this for many years. And, and so when you, you started leaning into the data space, what were some of the things that you used to transition from math to data? You know, was it courses? Was it technology? What were the specifics that really helped you make that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. So two things. Number one is the skill set. Number two is relationship. Um, let's talk about the skill set first. I think the skill set, I think the most important thing is programming. Because when you are in college, 10 years ago, nobody actually, if you're not a CS major, nobody's going to talk to you, hey, learn Python. So I have to technically learn Python myself, study like courses online from Coursera, endurance course on ML, and then to acquire the skill set. And also like SQL is also important, important if you want to do data analysis. So these two skill sets are the most important ones that benefit me a lot when I'm going to the career. And so that was just to recap. So that was learning to code Python and then also uh, SQL. You mentioned a little bit of something about machine machine learning as well. Yes, uh, machine learning, um, that's, uh, that's technically a fancy world of statistical analysis because it's all about regression with different kind of methodologies. So we can go deeper if, if you want, but on high level, it's basically a way of doing statistical modeling. No, I think that's good. I just want people to, you know, because I know there are people coming out of school with mathematic degrees. They may see the opportunity like you did to work in tech. And I just wanted to give them, you know, two or three things. I think that's that's pretty straightforward. And so you said it was skill set in relationships. So what, what was on the relationship side? So relationship uh, is summarized to like, how can you get a job? Because I think right now, job market is very different from job market 10 years ago. I think right now, the job market is pretty tough. But back then, job market is okay because tech is booming, right? Everybody is hiring. It's a matter of where do you go, right? There's like, because if I was in Silicon Valley, there was 20 companies I can choose. So where do you go? So uh, having a relationship with somebody that was working in the industry helps a lot. So these people actually tells me that, hey, don't go to the big companies, try to go to like mid-sized company. You have like upside, that company might be a comp IPO and you will learn a lot um, and you can go also go small as possible. So just knowing the people in the industry, trying to intentionally network with them is also very uh, helpful skill set. And so where coming out of, of Cal and coming out of grad school, what was the way that then you started making those relationships? My master program actually helped me a lot. So the program I was at was financial engineering, and that was a very popular degree or, or program at the time. And that program was uh, specifically designed for career. It's not like a random master program that kind of they don't provide you opportunities. The program has built-in internship that they force you to go to the industry for three months. And the program director is gonna find, like, try her best to get the job for you. That's the program is famous about. You know, today, sometimes people uh, disparage going for different degrees and other types of higher education. However, it sounds like in this scenario, there was huge value because you got to learn a very desirable skill and there was a good transition for you to get into the job market. Exactly. I think there are more programs like this coming up and some programs are more serious than the others. I think what I get the most out of the program is not the courses I study. It's more about the opportunities, the alumni network that you're connected with, right? The people you know, right? Uh, most of my classmates I graduated with, they are already like direct levels in different kind of companies. So there are a lot of network I can get out of if I really want to tap into. 
Yes. Um, the course technically is you can you can learn elsewhere. Like the 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 online study is so so popular right now. Like you can technically learn everything you want, but it's more about the networking that you're getting the most out of the program. In my opinion. What about working in in teams on projects? Did the did the course facilitate that as well? We actually have specific project that our program director will find for us. So basically what she did was she, she was very connected with all of these big companies because she sent people there. So it's easy for her to ask for something, right? So she actually talked to these alumni, hey, give me 10 projects and people will give it to her. And then she distributed these projects to us for us to work on. So we actually have like a monthly cadence to talk to these industry professionals about how to execute some project. And it's always a group. So definitely collaborations. And that's great as well, because now you're also starting to get the connection. So you're here getting your master's degree. You're doing projects that are tied to industry. People ask me all the time, how do you network? I'm curious, what were some of the things that you did to start building these relationships when you had these you know, very small incremental touch points? Yeah. So first of all, I consider myself being very bad at networking. I see people that's doing way more, way better at networking than I did. So a few things. I think number one is just you need, you need to go out to, to the social event. That's number one. Number two is don't be afraid of reach out to random people on LinkedIn. That's another strategy. Number three is when you get into a company, you should always try to build a personal relationship with your colleagues not just business relationship. I, I learned this so late. Like I learned this like maybe year five, year six in my career. And I was like, I don't know anybody that I work with in my first company. How do I actually build up the relationship? And I, I just regret it so much because nobody taught me this concept at the time. Nice. And that's great that you're then sharing it with others. So if you had to do it over again, what, what are some examples to build personal relationships that you would do? Get to know them in person. Just like, don't, don't just talk about project. Have, have lunch with them, grab coffee with them. Don't eat yourself alone. I, I always eat in front of my desk because I just so antisocial. I don't want to talk to them. I think it's a waste of time. Um, so, so always talk to them, right? Try to be personal, attend there. Like if they invite you, go. Like for example, hey Frank, I have a birthday party. Do you want to come? No, I don't want to come. Then let's get over. <laughs> so, so always, always be friendly to, to go out and also provide values to them. Like don't just, expect them gonna help you like try to try to just be helpful as much as possible hey are you looking for a new job do you need a referral here hey um i, I know this like if it's a, your, your colleague hey uh, i know you're gonna pick up your kid tomorrow maybe i can take over this project maybe i can be on call for you for three days um, etc just try to give them values and uh, don't just don't expect they're gonna give you back but usually uh good things work out Good things work out. Yeah, I, I found the same thing too. So what were some of the internships that you got when you were in this program? Yeah, so I did two internships. Um, number one is a uh, data scientist internship at Uber. Another one is a quantitative researcher at Citadel. So Citadel, was, uh, Citadel is a very good hedge fund in Chicago. So at the end of the program, I have to pick from two, right? And uh, for for a few reasons that explaining my LinkedIn post, I choose to go with Uber. Uh, but it's mainly for that I want to be more in the tech world 
I want a more collaborative environment. And my wife is also don't want to come to Chicago. So we, we, we kind of settle in Bay Area. It's important that people understand there are these real decision factors that go into some of these decisions as well. But I think let's try and tease out some of those points that went into uh, the post. Why, why tech over hedge fund? I've seen people choose in the opposite direction, but what was what was from a career, you said more collaboration, and did you see opportunity in the upside with the equity? What, what were some of the drivers there? So um, I kind of learned this over the year and I still currently don't have like a um, firm say on this, but I'll try to share what I learned. So tech company, so, so tech company is basically like more friendly environment, better culture, flexible time. You're building something more real than finance, right? Finance is more about like digital or virtual asset. It's like you're trading a stock, but it's a piece of, it's a line of code. But for, for tech, you're actually building something that you can see, right? So that's a big difference, number one. Number two is the collaborations. Um, the, it just happened to be the hedge fund I was in. It was a very competitive hedge fund. There are other hedge funds that's more collaborative. I, I couldn't speak too much about that, but from my own experience, I don't see enough collaborations which is not the style I am, but obviously there are a lot of people who are super competitive and they enjoy that environment. So that would be great for them. But, but just for me, I like collaborations. So, so I choose to go more on the tech world. Number three is obviously the, the, the culture uh, or the, the, the place you stay at is also important because you, you are not just tied up to your work. It's more about your, your life as well, right? So um, I, I enjoy California. Um, I'm still staying in California, even though a lot of my colleagues move away from California for tax reasons, but I'm still staying in California. So I love California. Uh, lastly is obviously the upside. So I would say finance companies, you are basically using your own skill set to make your bonus. Whatever you make, you, you, you get a proportion out of it. That's like just the finance thing, right? So it's also limited to you, your own ability of generating income. For a tech company, you are, it's more of a different story. Um, you make equity and equity value is proportional to how big company is growing. So technically other people are helping you to build up the equity, not just by yourself. So you no longer feel being alone. And in my opinion, I was thinking that tech equity has a higher upset upside if you join a decent enough company, not too big, not too small. So that, that was the decision I was making. Sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong because not every single IPO end up with a huge paycheck. But if you join early enough, you are persistent, you are patient, sometimes it paid off. So so there are definitely uh, pros and cons in both sides. But that was the decision I make to choose on the tax board. Yeah, I think that that's a really great distinction is, is looking at what is dependent on my hours worked and then I get an increment of sort of my hours and it has a limit on it versus if you're actually getting shares of a company, especially when it gets to being in a public market, there can be upside that you can't you can't factor in that has nothing to do with you. It has to do with everybody and, uh, and how this company is performing against its peers and other things as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Tech company has the benefit of growing infinitely because you're building a software and that software compound as long as you build it. So so that was spot on. So then you you then chose to join Uber. That was your that was your first role. You went to what would be considered big tech. What was what was the transition like? And help us understand, you know, what was your experience getting that first equity package? What what were the questions that you asked and what were the questions you wish you would have asked? Yeah. So when I joined Uber, I think everybody kind of know Uber is gonna go IPO. 
So I'm, I'm not super worried about the IPO part because I know Uber is going to IPO. I think at the time, my decision becomes, okay, uh, well, by the way, one of the reasons I left Uber is because my mentor left. And, and also the group is kind of like, because there was like some uh, drama happening at Uber. Like there was a change of CEO and to get company ready to public, they, they take a kick out Travis and they brought Dara from, from Expedia. Uh, so that was a very chaotic era that Uber growth becomes plateau and they, they lost their China business to DD and they lost, they almost lost their Asia business to, to someone else. So, so the growth kind of plateau and, and there are some fightings in turn of the teams, which I feel like this might not be something I want. I, I don't want to get too much involved in this territory competition. I, I'm still too young and super vulnerable. I want to just learn. So that's the reason I choose to, to leave Uber, not, not because of the, the, the other side, just like for, for my own growth perspective, because my equity, like com compared to right now, like my equity is so low, like how, how much can I make as like a junior level? It's, 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 it's really not meaningful. So I think, okay, it's time for me to, to move on. And uh, then I was choosing between two companies, uh, like a few companies, like the big side fan, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, LinkedIn, and then like smaller companies. So, so that was like a huge decision making for me at the time. And I kind of follow my mentor that has, I'm always following. Um, into a smaller company. And I tra also transit myself from more data scientist kind of role to more engineer kind of role. So that's the decision I make. Take a step back. The Uber was a stop in the career path where it wasn't for that long. You got some good experience, but when you started to see, you know, a lot of management turnover, and then I do know that having disruptions in leadership where it's removing and changing a CEO or even some of the more influential C-suite, that can cause a big disruption in the organizations because when that person goes, there's usually a ripple down effect because other you know, C-suite leaders want to bring in their trusted advisors. So your focus at that point was, I want to be somewhere where I can build skills with a company that's not having drama. You were able to, you were able to take some equity though with you. Is that correct? Of course, of course. You, you so basically how tech equity work was that big package, you get a big equity package when you sign the offer. The equity was split it into 48 months to give it to you, but you are not getting anything for the first 11 months. So at month 12, which is your anniversary, they're going to give you a quarter of what they promised. And like follow up that your equity is going to deliver to you either, either quarterly or monthly. So, so I left Uber on my anniversary plus one day. <laughs> Got it. So you were able, you were able to get a quarter's worth of, of the package off the table. Yeah, yeah, but I, I gave up the the, the rest of the thing. Yeah, you gave up the rest. No, and, that, and that's important for people to understand is that, you know, the equity, they, they call it the golden handcuffs they because they want to keep you there. But if you break out of those handcuffs, they're going to keep the gold. <laughs> yeah. Right now, I think at the time, Uber is still like linear, but I see more like more more handcuff packages like the, the equity increase. So instead of 25, 25, 25, 25, they're going to do 10, 20, 30, 40. So they, they, they motivate you to stay longer. That's how, that's how tech company. Yeah. Yes. I've seen some companies starting to structure the packages differently to, I mean, to create different incentives. 100%. Because I, I want to understand your journey to understanding equity. I think it's interesting that you went to Uber pre-IPO. Sure, you didn't get a lot, but you, you had 
the stock agreement. You had to understand vesting cycles. How much did you know before you got to signing the package versus how much did you learn from that experience? And then, you know, what did you take with you when you started to apply for roles after that? Yeah, so I'm a bad example, actually. I don't know anything until I get my money. So, so that's a that's a bad thing. So so I, I had a I had very vague understanding of how tech equity worked when I signed the offers. Because I had two IPOs. I like I like I clearly understand everything at the time my second IPO happened. And then I regret it so much. But TLDR is that I don't understand anything when I send an offer. I just trust people. I just trust like, because when they give it to the offer, they're going to tell you, hey, this is the equity you're gonna, you are getting. And this is their evaluations. So you kind of translate into like a dollar package. And you kind of, you just don't, you kind of don't pay too much attention of how like RCU work. RCU are like uh, equity before IPO. So, so I kind of don't know like what's the difference between like ENSO, ISO, RSU until like my second time. So first time I kind of just let it go. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, not going to look at it. I trust Uber. I trust people. I trust my intuition. I'm just going to focus on, on my learnings. And then when Uber goes IPO, I was like, oh, I, I didn't prepare. <laughs> so what should I do? Yeah. Right. Well, and then, so then you took that learning. And so Uber went IPO, you're, you're working at Open Door. And tell us a little bit about that selection process. You were looking at Open Door and, and looking to go for a larger tech company, but you made the decision to follow your mentor. Yeah. So my mentor and I share a lot of common values. I think, I think put it differently. I think most of my value is shared by my mentor. At the time, it's basically big company and small company. Big company, obviously, like, I had offers from like Microsoft, uh, Uber, sorry, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google's. And their package is very straightforward, right? You, you get this amount of stock, this amount of money. This is what you work on, um, for, for, for obvious project, right? If it's Microsoft, LinkedIn, I will count like LinkedIn optimizations, Facebook, I will count recommendations, etc. Um, and then my mentor was at this open door, which is like, I think at the time was wrong, series, series C or series D, not even a unicorn yet working on real estate. So Open Door is a real estate company, by the way. I tend to choose people over company because I think it doesn't really, like I think like it's more about your skill set. It doesn't really matter what problems you are solving because most of these problems are interchangeable. Um, so I can't, so then I make the decision of going into Open Door mainly because of the people. And also I am young, I was young. I think I had a few shots to even lose it. And I want to have enough upside for bigger money. That's why I joined Open Door because that was 2017. Market was still great. Oh yeah, a lot of tailwinds, things moving very quickly. Capital. Yes, VC world is awesome. Like no problem of raising money. So and, and that and, and having because my mentor is maybe three levels ahead of me, so he can help me to understand how to navigate better in Korea, right? Because there are a lot of things I'm focusing locally. He's, 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 he's like, friend, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't even bother these. Look at the bigger picture. Focusing on that. Don't, don't focus on how many reports you have. So there are a lot of benefit I was getting from the hindsight from my mentorship that, that was super valuable. That makes my progression super fast. So I joined Open Door mainly because of my mentor, the tech upside. Um, and, and the rest is like, I happen to end up in real estate and then I keep doing more real estate. Right. Did you have, before you joined Open Door, did you have an interest in real estate that brought in or was it when you were at Open Door? Um, because I, I, like, I don't have any money at the time. 
because like it's not even Uber Uber IPO after I joined Open Door. So so I'm I'm not saving enough and and I, I was in like uh I was about to get married. I need to I know I'm I need to save for a condo. So I, I wasn't thinking about real estate investment. Like all of my st- money was in stock market which is performing great. So that's that's how I was thinking about real estate. But I know from re- reading like Robert Kiyosaki that you should buy assets. So I, I kind of see myself moving into real estate world. I would say, okay, this is a great opportunity. I can I can learn how to how real estate work and then I'm gonna probably do it myself. So so I that, that that's also a factor. So am I hearing you say that you did have a vision of building up a stockpile of tech equity that you could then convert to dollars and go buy assets? Was that something in the back of your mind? Yeah. So I I am pretty frugal in the sense of I don't really enjoy buying fancy stuff. The only expensive hobby I had is watches, which I can talk about later. But I I I don't really spend money. So my goal is trying to build up like Robert kind of style, like build up asset sorry sorry cash flow generating asset. And I had the fancy uh sorry fantasy of not working at the end. My goal is basically buy up a bunch of property that pay me cash so I don't have to work. So that was actually everybody's dream from day one. Uh, me, me, no, no, me, no exception. So yes, I was thinking about transition my tech equity into something else. I, I like, I'm a very risk reverse. I'm kind of risk averse. So I, I don't really want to put everything in one basket. So you're at Open Door. What was the potential that you saw for an exit when you walked in the door? Was that part of the intention? Was was to get to an IPO, or was that something that unfolded along the way? Yes, definitely. You join a tech company for IPO. Me, 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 no exceptions. I don't really know how big the company is going to grow. To be honest, I have no idea what upside looks like because at the time, like you know, like entry level software engineer make maybe one fifty a year, everything included. I think maybe I can double my money. Like if I can make 300, 500, that was, that was, that was good enough. I wasn't thinking about millions, right? Like millions just so far away from me. So I don't really know that because, because 1 million, 10 million mean, mean no, mean no difference because I haven't seen these asset yet. So, so I actually don't know what do I want. Well, all I know is that I want to make more than if I join, uh, sorry, Google. So, so I was just expecting that relativity. I didn't expect like how big should it, what will I grow? So I, I definitely don't see the upside coming because I, I just haven't seen this money so big. So so you joined in 2017. How many years later did Open Door IPO? Uh, 2020 February it went IPO, but at the time I already left the company. I joined another company. Sorry, I think it went IPO 2021. Huh? Sorry, Open Door went IPO 2021. I left the company 2020 into a much smaller one because again my mentor pulled me in into a smaller. <laughs> And I'll kind of always just follow them until I get bored at Open Door. So, yeah. So before we go into that next company, so it sounds like you have a, a track record, which I think some people need to consider is you go there for career growth. You work there, you get the equity, you actually then take the equity with you because you see the value of it, you, you're then stockpiling that equity and then IPOs happen. So then I've done the opposite, right? I've actually been with the companies in that moment. So I'm curious, what was it like then for you? I don't know if you and your mentor were sitting around and said, let's watch the Open Door IPO and, and what happened because yeah. I know that it, it had a bit of a pop on the first day. Yeah, so uh, it was definitely a roller coaster experience because it was first COVID and Open Door lay off forty percent. 
everybody think about, but that was before IPO. Uh, that was COVID. Everybody opened the layoff 40%. Everybody thinking open doors is going to go bankrupt. So I wasn't really expecting the company becomes IPO. Then I left the company because I, I was like, okay, the company is not doing great. The growth is stabilizing because it's COVID. Real estate is bad. Interest rates, it's interest rate okay, but nobody's buying homes at COVID. Business shrunk. Nobody knows how long COVID is going to last. And at the same time, my mentor was dragging me to a new world, which is much smaller. Because again, I was like, I, I, because I was expecting open door to fail. So I was like, oh, I need to find something more risky to recoup my two years at open door. And then I joined the company and then open door announced a spec, uh, which is IPO with like a special like vehicle with Shamash. Right. You're right. So they did the, the, the Spock, they basically got acquired by that Spock and they were floating then on that stock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was actually just a windfall. Like I didn't expect anything and it happened. So I was very happy. And so when that happened, I was, I was reading, read one of your LinkedIn posts where you were talking about, you know, what then happened post IPO, because it is important that people understand when your company IPOs, not all of them actually have that same value three years later. So did you already have a plan to diversify and take some of those shares off the table? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So first of all, first things I learned after Uber is that when a company becomes IPO, you are not allowed to sell your shares until six months later. That's like, oh, geez. I, so because, because everybody is going to like, usually company, usually, usually IPO is very high spot. And then after a few months, it tank, right? So. And also like when, when the, when the, when locking, when the locking period expires, more, more people sell. So there might be another drop. So first of all, I, I was realized is that, okay, you are not able to sell your shares after six months. And at six months, that was like the peak of COVID. I think interest rate was super low. Market is great. So I was like, I, I had the intention of, of selling my stock and I, I sold maybe 30% of it at a very reasonable price. And I was like, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna wait for the rest of the 75% to go higher. But that higher point never happened. The time I sold was the highest, and it keeps dropping. And and again, like I keep not making decision because I feel like, oh, I want to wait it back, which never happened. So that's another lesson I learned. Like if you really want to diversify, you you, you shouldn't expect to sell at any price point. You should just sell it to to diversify instead of holding your equities down the road. So I actually lose a lot of equities. Sorry, I lose a, a lot of portion of my of my stock value because I didn't sell it at 20 something dollars. But I but I sold a few so so I actually be able to catch out a lot. No, so that's good. So you are, you said I'm going to take 30% off the table. You watched it, but then as it was going down, did you start harvesting more and more as you realized the stock price isn't going to go up? Uh, I kind of become like a orchid, sorry, like the bird who put their head I don't know what's the Ostrich, sorry. Yes, I, I kind of become ostrich that I just don't want to look at it. That's not good. Uh, that's a bad lesson. That, I just my psychology, like I, I, I made the less optimal decisions. Well, and I appreciate you being so candid because the reality is a lot of us do. And this is, this is why we need to have these conversations. So if you were to talk back to yourself going through this, what would you, what would you say to Frank if you could go back in time? Yeah, I always tell the, the the younger friend that the problem doesn't go away when you don't look at it. So so if you don't look at your bank account, it doesn't mean 
the loss didn't happen there. A lot of people avoid to accept the pain just to 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 get ready for the bigger pain. And it's it's human nature of not getting hurt, right? You don't want to get hurt every day. But the good the right thing to do is to to check your finance regularly. And if you don't want to do it, have somebody accountable to force you to do it. So that's why I also hire a coach that basically just 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 keep talking to me. Was this uh was this a financial coach? Oh no, no, that was Tony Robbins life coach. Okay. Life coach, got it. Kept speaking that truth into you. And so then you you made the decision. I I really think you framed it up well as you kept increasing your risk because you knew that you had to go back and try and make up for some of that time. So what was then the third move that you made? Yo, so third move um, we made is we started a new company called Alt. It is a alternative asset trading company. When we first created, uh, it's basically like seven of us, uh, five of us actually. I was at, I was number number five. So my mentor co-founded the company with with his friend, and my mentor brought me in as like the first batch. And obviously, the co-founder himself brought a bunch of people, and then we keep growing. So I was getting like ver like like percentage wise, like you get X percent of the company instead of. And uh, we, we keep growing. Um, the, the CEO himself is very good at raising money. So we raise our seed round even before the company. We, like, we, we have a verbal confirmation of the seed round even before the company is being established. And then one year later, we raise our Series A, which is 75 million check, company, value, uh, company valuation 375 million. And, and uh, after that, it's economy downturn. Nobody is raising. People are focusing on growth. So this is the reality right now. So so we are basically just trying to focus on profitability instead of growth at this moment. I think that's that's what so many other companies are doing right now is they're trying to focus on profitability and extending the runway. What are some of the key techniques that you're using to do that? Reduce people. That is not necessary. That's unfortunate, but we have to do it. Uh, stop spending a lot of money on marketing. Stop acquiring people who doesn't make sense. Like stop paying too much CAC, like a uh, cost per acquisition. Stop acquiring more expensive people. And uh, like we don't have a problem of office, so we don't have to reduce the office part because we are from day one virtual, like like remote. So so we don't have like a cost on the office side. So it's mainly about like operational efficiencies, and you want to make. ROI, like return on investment, positive bets. So whenever you do a project, you want the project to give you positive return. And it's interesting because these types of headwinds, I believe, ultimately make us make hard decisions that maybe we were too comfortable to make before. To your point, it is extremely hard when you have to reduce the size of your staff. But at the same time, that you, you could be forced to then do an exercise to say, well, who is really necessary? Or maybe you're right, you're reducing some investment areas as well. But all of those other cost-cutting measures that you talk about ultimately will make the company healthier. Yes. I think there's a kind of conflict of interest between what's good for the company and what's good for the, each individual. It's just a natural of the, of the business. It is. It is because sometimes the company is going to have to make decisions that are not in the best interest of the individuals just so that it can stay alive. Yeah. And uh, I see a lot of bad story happen in that area that people have a hundred percent. Let's say a, I know a guy in Facebook, he had a hundred percent of his portfolio at Facebook. 
meaning that he never exercised. Sorry, he never sold all of his Facebook shares, and he got and he got he got laid off, and the company stock lost thirty percent. What can he do? Right? He's he's basically betting on Facebook using his time and money. He's double betting on Facebook, and there's a idiosyncratic, which is like company specific risk, happen to Facebook, and he he double lost. He could have just like a better option is he, he, he could have buy everything on Google and Google might not drop 30%, right? And I, when I asked him, Hey, why would you do that? He was like, I was making great money when Facebook was at 50%, right? My equity grows, my stock market grows, but they never talk about the downside. They don't. This is some type of a success bias. When you're having success, I think of it as my best thinking got me here, created this whole thing. It's going to continue. The reality is when you think about a portfolio across your time, across your equity, you said it exactly how I think about it, which is you're double betting on Facebook. You're investing all your hours there. You have all your equity there. So not only did he lose the value of his entire salary bonus, but then he also lost that 30% equity. Yeah, that was pretty sad. And like that's Warren Buffett, right? When when the when the tie goes down, you know who's swim make the so so I, I think i think i think we need to get ourselves educated on financial side otherwise because i personally see that most of the fortune is made for due to luck which is market because i i like me couldn't change what the market right the market goes up i i contributed to be like a luck so so most of our tech company tech employees fortune are are, are allocated to luck and if you cannot educate yourself financially enough, you're going to lose it when the luck goes away. So, which is why, like, I think I am, because I have a financial engineering background, I saw myself as more financially educated compared to my colleagues. And, and I'm screwing up myself. So, so imagine how, how my colleagues screwing up. Well, and I think that it's important that we have, you know, you and I had this conversation recently where there's an expectation that if somebody works in high finance, investment banking or a hedge fund or something that they're good with their personal finances. But that's not always the truth. Many times they can arguably be worse. They may be inflating their lifestyle. And I'm not talking about you, but other people can be as well. Or they're not looking at the type of assets that they're receiving in compensation, like instead of stock options, non-qualified options or restricted share units, restricted stock units, and understanding what are the implications to manage those effectively over time. Exactly. Yeah. So, so definitely, I think personal finance education is super important. And I think everyone, everyone needs to learn it. Well, great. Well, that is a good segue. We're going to take a small break right here. We're going to be back with Frank Sia. We're going to talk about now how he's taking all of this learning and he's building out his private equity company and portfolio. We'll be right back. All right, and we are back with Frank Zia. And in the second half of the show today, we really we want to talk about your journey. Now you've been in tech. You we heard how you had the vision, Robert Kiyosaki. I think I it gives me chills because I was the same way too. As I saw that quadrant four, and I thought, man, if I can just get assets to pay me, then I can I can choose what I do with my time. I ultimately get that time freedom. I think many of us are thinking. And you had told me before that your focus from the get-go was on real estate because you see it as a less 
you know, risky asset. Some people believe it's very risky. Tell us again, give me, give me your thesis on, you know, why real estate is that core asset to uh, support your financial freedom. Yeah. So Open Door is a real estate company. So I have the entire two and a half years studying real estate. And I get very, because I was in the pricing team. So we built all of the pricing systems of how to price the homes. So I kind of know all of the fundamentals of how the real estate business works. So um, basically you buy a home, the home, we're talking about single family right now. Single family is basically like residentials. So the residential price is basically a weighted average of all of your neighbors. And the price is, de- de- is mostly de- de- uh, determined from the supply demand versus, right? If you have more people who want to move to this region, price go up. If people want to move away, price go down. And se- similar to rent, right? Rent is basically generated from the tenant who wants to live in this property. The, the, the better the property, the good, the better the city, the higher the rent. So that's it. This is how real estate generates money. If you look at stock market, there's a huge, it's always like, according to Warren Buffett, right? Stock, like the company have its intrinsic book value and the market, the, the stock market, because it's trade on secondary due to supply demand, it's always up and down, right? And, and sometimes it's just too far away from, from its intrinsic value and it will be, it might take years to correct and, or it will never. So I feel like real estate is more predictable from cash flow wise compared to star market. And due to the open door experience, uh, that open door, sorry, the open door stock price experience, I, I kind of not super confident of investing in real estate, sorry, investing in stock market. Plus I was working at hedge fund before and I know how stock trading is look like. I definitely don't see myself beating these people who have like golden, gold Olympic like medals for like mathematics. So I personally don't believe I could be the stock market. That's just my personal thesis. Feel free to disagree. Um, and, and I just think, okay, if I, if I want to make, if I want to make money, I think the real money is actually in something that is less competitive. So I see real estate being a category that if you know really what you're doing, they are alpha there. Alpha meaning your skill set. There's skill set that can transition into dollar. So that's how I choose a less competitive category. For example, it is the same thing on watches. Watches, they're huge of alpha over there, which is what I do as a hobby and real estate. So I'm basically allocating a majority of my uh, wealth into the asset that I think you can generate a lot of alpha and also it's less risky. I think real estate is less risky in the stock market, just in general. If, what about... What about the income versus the growth component? I know for myself, I target real estate because it is an asset that is made to cash flow efficiency efficiently, right? It has uh, you know, the depreciation that can offset the actual cash flow itself. So not only can I get it to cash flow, unlike a dividend bearing stock where it's going to come out and have a tax burden, if I am strategic about the way that I purchase my real estate, I can actually get that cash flow stream at a tax advantage in addition to owning an appreciating asset. Yeah. So that depends on who the person is focusing on. So there are two, there are, there are a few parties of this game, right? There's somebody like me who's pretty much spending all their time in real estate 
or there's somebody like my 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 uncle who just invests their money in real estate for cash flow income, but he has a full time job elsewhere. So it depends on the purpose. So I I can speak for myself, and I can speak speak for like a tech company. Sorry, tech employee. Okay, because I'm currently full time in real estate. I don't just expect to make cash flow. I also look at how do I choose better property to make more money. So this is what I focus on, the identification side. But if I, because the, the only reason I'm doing this is, is I spend all of my time underwriting deals. But if I am also working tech, I have zero time looking at real estate. I would expect the real estate to generate a lot of income for me, cash on a monthly or quarterly basis with tax benefit. That's definitely very different perspective. Depends on who you're playing with, like what, what role you're playing with. So for, for, for tech people, I think a lot of tech people has a lot of earnings and they don't know how to, to allocate their assets. I think if they want cash flow, real estate is a very good place to park their money because the risk is relatively smaller than stock market. It's higher than bond, which is why the return is higher than a bond. There's, there's no free lunch. Um, and it gives you tax benefit as well. And so how did you go about starting to transition some of your portfolio. I remember in the story when I think it was Uber, uh, you, you didn't have a lot of stock, you're getting married. Then, you know, later on you had Open Door go public. You had some uh, Uber eventually went public. Where did you start deploying that capital uh, to get started in real estate? Yeah, so me and my wife both, work, both was working at W2 in tech. So we our compensation was pretty high. Um, so we started to save a lot of money and we just keep buying. And also there's some support from the family. So, so the foreigners, they want to, they want to support us. So we keep deploying assets because I'm Chinese. Chinese people are famous for buying real estate. So I start to buy real estate. So the first one we bought was the condo where we live in San Francisco. And then I bought another condo in New Jersey, hoping that I can make money from income. From, from the front of rent. Then I realized, oh, I, I'm losing every every month. I'm still losing <laughs> on that property. Right, because the taxes, taxes in Jersey yes. are crazy. Taxes and HOA. Um, and they realized, okay, I sh- uh, that was COVID. Everybody is not, everybody do not want to live in condo. They want to live into single family. They want to move to some Bell State, which is uh, Southern area. And I was like, okay, we should buy some something in, 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 in Florida or Texas. So floor, uh, Texas was already expensive at the time, and uh, I couldn't get a very good return. So I, I started to pay attention to, to Tampa. So I found a guy on social media, which I'd never met before, bought a few properties, which is townhome over there, which I've never been there. I still haven't been there in, in Tampa. And I, and, and I asked a third-party management to operate it. So after I bought five, six of them, I realized I have a big trouble of getting additional single family or townhomes because every time you buy a new one, the bank is going to come after you to ask all of your financials. Eventually I reached to a, a, a threshold of my debt to income ratio. And the bank says, okay, we cannot lend you more money because we bought so fast. Because um, usually your rental income should offset your expenses, but the bank is only willing to do after you establish a pattern for two years, which I haven't. So, so all of the rental income didn't come. So obviously I, I, I've capped over there, but I still want to deploy cash into real estate. And I think, okay, what should I do? So magically I met a person 
who's the husband of my colleague, who's a few years ahead of me. He, he is very similar to me that he has big tech equity to exit and he wants to deploy his cash. He was into this real estate journey and I talked to him, I grew him for 10 hours and I decided to go into multifamily and I started as an LP, limited partner. And I, and I invested three deals with him. And then I decided, okay, I like, I like this game. This game is much better than single family because you are not really kept by your income, right? And you can buy a hundred unit, 200 unit and achieve economy of scale. So this is how I started to move into this multifamily business. And what, what are some of the things? So you, that drew you towards, you know, commercial real estate, you know, a private equity type structure. It was obviously the scale and you're right. You can then create some type of an entity with a lot of dollars so you can get the loans that you require. What, what other things uh, attracted you to this? Oh, I think so. So these two are very important. The other one is text text. The reason is that, so we are as tech companies, we pay a lot of W2s, right? W2s are the worst type of income that it is just so hard to offset your tax. I mean, I'm not saying we should avoid tax. We should, everybody should pay their tax, but how do we strategically minimize the tax is something I think a lot of people were thinking about. So real estate actually give you a way that you can use the depreciation, depreciation from the investment you make to offset some of your W2, some of your W2 income condition. Uh, you become a real estate professionals. So this is something I was fascinated because I do have some W3 income and tech equities I want to offset. So, so, and, and this is something you cannot achieve using single family because there's no cost segregation over there. So real estate in multifamily, it allows you to depreciate faster in year one that you can technically kick your income a few years ahead. So this is something I, I really enjoy. I'll become multifamily. So three things, uh, I think economy of scale, uh, bigger unit operation efficiency, and uh, uh, le also debt leveraging for sure and tax. So how do you, how do you envision scaling out? Not, not so much the private equity business, but your personal portfolio, is it really then going to be now, uh, you'd mentioned before, you'll have some stock holdings, you'll have some single family homes and then multifamily or how do you envision that portfolio? So uh, I borrowed this concept from uh, Dave Ramsey is that I want to allocate my asset proportionally to my knowledge. I know nothing about stock. I mean, I, I know I learned stock market a long time ago, but I, I, I stopped like catching up. So I'm not going to like my knowledge on stock market is very small. So I decided to put a small percentage on stock market. I know nothing about cryptocurrency, so I liquidate all of my cryptocurrency, which I lost a lot of money on as a lesson. Uh, I know a ton of watches. I know a ton of real estate. So most of my asset currently is on these two categories. And I can see myself doing more of that. Maybe one day I change my focus into small business. Then I'm probably going to shift my money into small business. But I'm a huge believer of spending, allocating my assets proportionally to my knowledge. And what, what asset classes in, in commercial real estate appeal to you the most? Uh, so right now, I think given, given I'm still very young in this business, 
all I know is how to underwrite multifamily in class B or class C value added, meaning that this is 1970 plus to about 2000. Multifamily, meaning that 100 unit apartment for rental purpose. Value add, meaning you're going to do something to increase the cash flow to sell it for a higher price. This is the category, I would say it's more like bread and butter for, for all of the multifamily. It is like a core, imagine this is like a core satellite analogy. I think multifamily is the core, sorry, class B is the core. Satellite is more like beauty, like BTR, beauty rent, parking lot, self-storage, ATM machines, etc. So I, I see myself doing a great job on the core first and I'm gonna, I'm always learning. Like for example, yesterday I talked to a guy who teaches me how to construct uh, design driven condos. I was like, oh, never, I never heard of this concept before. I want to know more. Somebody pitched me a more, more about, like somebody pitched me a hotel construction last week. I never knew it. So I'm always learning these satellite construct, uh, satellite stuff. But before I fully learn these, I'm gonna put all of my money in this, core portfolio, which is multifamily. Oh, because multifamily is at the heart of it, uh, just scaled residential housing. That's all it is, you know, from single family home. So it, it's easy to understand. It's a base and fundamental need. And I resonate with that strategy, which is focus on the core. Once you deploy capital there, you get a good foothold in that asset class and you're building your knowledge and learning and understanding how to continue to reinvest there. Then you can start looking at others. That was I mean, that was my exact journey of, I focused on multifamily for the first four or five years before I started moving to uh, investing in other asset classes as well. Yeah, definitely. Because you are, we are trying to make a, like cash flow livings all of these multifamilies, right? When we don't expect to become billionaires on, on these categories, but these, as these satellite are, are your bets, are like your best to, to make more money, but you might also lose. Right, and I think about it as, I want to make sure that in my portfolio, I divide it into two halves. Half is income, half is growth. And then I and then I cut it, you know, another direction. And so if you think the income is decided in the two half, one is is capital preservation. I mean, that is even single family homes that we're looking to deleverage. And I it, it's a strategy that I learned from a couple of my mentors, which which uh two of them have uh one has 10, the other has 14 single family properties all paid off. And that is the cornerstone of their family's wealth, which just consistently pays them checks every month. And then, and then the other, I, I consider that, you know, more, I'd say riskier income where you can then look at, you know, now we're diversified across, you know, ATMs, mobile home parks. We even invested in some, um, some businesses recently as well too, because of the, get the high cash flow versus the other side on growth. On growth only, I go growth. I have stocks as my more conservative, where again, bet the market like you, I invest in the market. And then in that other quadrant where it's growth, that's where I'm going to be investing in technology startup companies or uh, early stage business direct investment, seed investment, those types of things, because I want, I know there's going to be more risk there, but there's also the opportunity for more growth as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I will do something similar. I'm, I'm thinking about. Maybe selling a few, maybe selling my condos because it's just a, it's not generating cash. I'm, I'm definitely selling my condos next. I'm probably going to keep my townhome because I have very low interest rate. 
I don't see myself selling it and I'm making 10% a year. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I had a very, like, I, like when I, when I bought it, that was 6% cash on cash. But when I start to rent it out, the, the rent goes up 10%. So I'm able to make 10%. That's beautiful. You also had a very unique experience working at Open Door, gave you insight into real estate. What advice would you give to people that are, you know, looking to get into real estate that really want to understand it? You know, one or two things that you would advise that they do before they start, you know, putting their money into play. I would say that you people should clearly differentiate between whether a property is used for investment purpose or for personal use. This is a huge difference that a lot of people, including me, tends to mix it up. Because at Open Door, because we are, ma- we are mainly facing on retail customer who, who buy a home for, for personal use. We, we call this buying as romance, selling as finance. The romance part, because you are emotionally attached, you see yourself living in the home, Right? But if you're investing in real estate, don't get romance on it. Pay more attention on numbers because numbers never lie. You're not going to live in the property you buy because not because of it's the worst, just like maybe it's far away. Don't think to yourself, oh, worst case, I'm just going to move there. It will never happen. So so just be super clear about what, what what's the purpose of, of your acquisition. That's really important. Yeah, the purpose of the acquisition and also how that aligns with the goals that you want to meet. I think that it's easy for people to get distracted by a gorgeous or beautiful property. I was talking to somebody the other day that you know had had this fantasy of buying land in Colorado, but really just wants a cash flowing piece of property. And you know, and and so you have to sort of, you have to look at both of those and say, do those really reconcile? If not, which one is more important? Well, my goals are more important. Okay, I got to put the fantasy aside for the for the short term. Yes, I have. I mixed it up very often. So, so good lessons. I, I still make this mistake right now. So, so going into 2024, where, where are you going to be looking for opportunities? Yeah. Going to, so, so I haven't really deployed a lot of money in 2023 just because of market is super hot and interest rates going up, deals are more expensive. So I passed like a lot of deals that could have been good deals two years or three years back that I say no to because I see that these properties are become more expensive and the numbers doesn't make sense. I think 2024, there are going to be a huge opportunities on the debt side because I think a lot of people are talking about this, like a lot of deals that get acquired two years, three years back, they are using floating rates and these floating rates are expiring. So they are in a position of either refinance or fire sale. Not every single person can refinance their property because they could have been high leverage, high leveraged. And also a lot of property right now are valued lower than their loan, which doesn't make sense for them to refinance. They would better to just declare delinquencies. So actually I'm very patient to wait for these opportunities to come up and I'm going to go grab it. So that's my strategy. And, and that's going to be single family and multifamily primarily? Multifamily. A single family doesn't have the issue because most of the loans are 30 years. But multifamily, two years ago, the only way to make number work is the bridge loans and they expire. The, the, actually, it's not, the, 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 it's not about the loans expiring, it's the recap because it's floating, right? So 
right now the interest rate is like five six they are paying like 10 and they are negatively cash flowing so and they are about to expire so what what are they gonna do i'm basically focusing on these distressed stressed assets well thanks so much frank i can't tell you how much i appreciate your transparency your candor and going through this experience of you know taking your equity leveraging it to buy real estate and and where you're looking going forward. We do always end up this podcast with a fire round. So I do have uh, five questions that I'm going to fire off to you yes, please. right now. Yeah. How, how do you keep learning? Um, I pay a lot of tuitions. Uh, tuition is a quote unquote. So a lot of people stop learning because they graduated. I constantly spend my, spend my money on educations. This including online courses, certifications, mastermind, coachings. I, I just spend a lot of money on these up until a point my wife started to yell at me. So I, I keep I spend a lot of money on educations because I personally believe when you have skin in the game, means you pay, you're gonna learn. If it's free, you're not gonna learn. Just by model. Yeah. Well, I know one hundred percent. Uh what soft skill has helped your career the most? What soft skill? Um I would say communications because I'm a software engineer. Software engineer, you would imagine that if you code well, you're gonna do great. But when you grow up, especially when you, when you grow like grow grow further, all the way to management or director levels, communications is all is is it's all about communications. So so being a very good communicators, saying things clearly, hold people accountable. Um, I think these are the most important skill set. And also like like deliver. You you need to deliver. You shouldn't you shouldn't procrastinate. So execution. What is the advice that you would give your younger self working in tech? Um good question. I think I I thought about this. I would say don't pay too much attention on a package. Like don't don't pay too much attention on your on the numbers you're making currently because all it matters is is your skill set. And these skill set compound very fast. It doesn't really matter if you make 200, sorry, uh, 50K, 100K more in this job versus another. At the end of the day, when you grow 10 years ahead, your account package could be different by a million dollars. So so don't pay attention on your, on your current package. Pay attention to the learnings. Um, this is what I will say. Got it. So if you're choosing a company, focus on what you're going to learn. Don't get into an argument around ten dollars or $15,000. Make sure that you get the opportunity to learn from great people because that's going to compound faster over time. Yeah. Don't, don't monetize yourself fast. Right. No, that's, that's great advice. What's the best, best investment you've ever made of time? Uh, I would say watch. I buy a lot of watches, very cheap, and they grow up to a very good portfolio. It's not real estate. I think watches grow faster than real estate, which is why, I mean, they also drop a little bit, but I, I'm a big fan of collecting high-end watches, including Rolex. And I purchased a lot of Rolex very, very cheap a few years back. And my investment tripled, doubled. Wow. That's amazing. What's the worst money or investing advice that you've ever received? I would say like buy a little bit of this, buy a little bit of that without knowing what you're buying. Because like everybody is telling me that you should buy crypto. I know nothing about crypto. The only reason I'm buying crypto is like my, my nephew bought it. And he was like, Frank, I'm tripling my money on Dogecoin and crypto, uh, Bitcoin. You should go for it. And then I listened to his advice. Uh, I mean, this is very hindsighting, but I, I'm, I'm probably not going to buy. I'm not going to deploy my money into something I don't know about. So this is 
at least try to understand how it works. But I, I didn't understand how Bitcoin works. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a great, that, that is some bad advice that people get is somebody wants you to just invest alongside them without understanding what it is. Yeah. I think that's good. Well, thank you so much for the time, Frank. Uh, appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me today. My pleasure. We need your reviews. Yes, it's Christopher here. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Frank Sia today. We need your reviews. Please go to Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or our webpage, and please leave us a review and let us know what you took away from today's show. We really appreciate you. Reviews will help us grow. Thank you very much.